I get cold. I'm still a human. <laughs> I'm still a human. That's good. We want Robo Jeff next yeah. episode. <laughs> Unfazed by the elements. Hey there. Welcome to Hot Takedown, the show where the hot takes of the sports world meet the numbers that prove them right or tear them down. Today is March 9th, 2021. And I'm Sarah Ziegler, the sports editor here at 538. Joining me in New York City is senior sports writer Neil Payne. Hi, Neil. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm great. I'm looking forward to beautiful weather in New York City this week. Finally, spring, even though it's not actually spring yet. I just love that feeling when you know baseball is happening in Florida, but will soon happen in the rest of the country. Uh, I guess Arizona also. I don't yeah. want to shortchange the Cactus League. <laughs> right. That is that is a very good feeling. And from Los Angeles is 538 contributor Jeff Foster. Hi, Jeff. Hello, Sarah. How are you? Hi, Neil. Well, hey, Jeff. I, sometimes I don't say hi to you, too. I got I to remember I've, that. I've, I've noticed that, but I don't say anything. It's not I personal. It's passive not aggressive personal. comments over the rest of the show to, to make mm, up for it. Nice. Um, I wanted to talk about Bryson DeChambeau for just a second. Um, did you guys watch the just monster drive he had on Saturday? I did. That then he followed up with a similar monster, like 377 yard drive on Sunday. It's really crazy. I was rooting I... for Lee Westwood, too. Friend friend of 538, <laughs> Lee Westwood. Yeah. I do. Like, this is an interesting case of where, like, uh, courses are, are maybe going to end up changing how they are laid out to price proofing. Yeah. If he can just go over your, you know, lake, then what is, then that lake need, probably needs to be bigger, right? That's, that was amazing. I just, yeah. yeah. The, the and, problem is like, there's only so much land. And I think we all agree that <laughs> golf courses should get less priority, <laughs> take up way too much land in certain places, particularly like this city. Um, but, which has no parks, but that's a whole nother discussion for another podcast. That's yeah. True. Well, my question also is like, obviously this has been part of Bryson. Like this is just Bryson doing Bryson things, but you know, the commentators were comparing it to like long drive competitions and it does sort of beg the question of like, why don't, why aren't there more of those like long drive type guys on the tour? If driving is like such a huge part of the game now, like maybe more so than ever, why why should you practice anything else why should you you know do anything else if if uh put put all of your practice time into trying to drive the green on a par 5 you know at this point like what's the downside to that i don't know because then they'd eight putt the yeah they can't putt neil <laughs> well it was funny that after that on the sun on the one on sunday i think it was he had like a very short wedge obviously after hitting that drive and then like missed the green on that and then ended up two putting uh for the birdie it's like come on dude you almost drove the green on a par five and all you got out of it was a birdie they're they're in those competitions because they can't putt neil no that is it is the beauty of golf that like i can still play golf even though i cannot hit a drive 300 yards or 200 yards or 150 yards like i really can't can't hit it very far but i can still play um because you know you can make other shots uh but yeah, it is. It is interesting when a golfer can put it all together. Um, I, what, this has become like a golf podcast, and I'm. I don't know if I'm comfortable with that. We talk about golf every week now. I don't. I don't know what's going on with that. Well, I mean, you know, the Masters is coming up, so that's true. I worry that's not going to change for a little while. 
but rest assured, we will probably stop. We we don't talk about golf in the sort of down golf months, you know, your Octobers you know, and Novembers. Or right. did we? I have to go back and check. <laughs> we might have since there was there was golf going on. It's like it's sort of like um, with the Michigan basketball team. We don't want to peak with our golf talk too early. We want to find the right the sweet spot for when we talk about golf. Beautiful trolling. Thank you. Oh, yeah, just taking pot shots at, at, on on March what 9th? Yeah, a little bit. <laughs> that that's okay. That's a, that's all right. You know, it was like it's the equivalent of a NFL team on a week 17 that's already made the playoffs, you know? You you rest the starters. We didn't rest our starters for the record. Oh, we played <laughs> yeah, our starters stop, the whole stop game. Stop going down this line of our But I'm saying it, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. It's, you know, just fill out, finish the year. Let's focus on the the real thing ahead. Yeah. Okay. That that sounds right. We should do that too. <laughs> On today's show, we want to do something a little bit different. It's been almost exactly a year since the coronavirus pandemic really hit the United States in earnest. The NBA suspended that Jazz Thunder game on March 11th, 2020. So 363 days later, we want to talk about what we've learned from this deeply weird year of sports, whether there are any changes we made during the pandemic we'd like to keep, and what we don't see ever going back to normal. Some things do never change, because after that, we'll take a deep dive into data with our rabbit hole of the week. So it's been a very uncertain year, even if on the field, the champions have been surprisingly chalky. Every single one of us was wrong about some aspect of the pandemic, how it would affect sports and our everyday lives. But we wanted to go back and find a take that was kind of representative of how the sports world reacted last March. And, and we found one. Here's Max Kellerman on ESPN's first take talking about the NBA suspending all league games on March 12th, 2020. Life is going to go on for most of us. The congressional doctor said yesterday between 70 and 150 million Americans, he predicts, We'll get coronavirus. The issue is that we don't get it all at once because if we get it all at once, the system's overtaxed and the mortality rate that's at 1% now, it increases. looks like, goes up. And who does it hit? Our most vulnerable people yeah. without access to medical attention, the elderly and, and the like. And so for them, life won't go on. For most of us, it will. So let's make sure life goes on for as many of us possible. as possible. That's the first thing, so you contain the spread. And then the second thing is when life goes back to normal, which people, you know, no one knows exactly, but, but the leading experts seem to think it's going to be several months. Mm -hmm. You pick up where you left off and play basketball. I'll, I'll be watching. Uh, I remember when we thought things would go back to normal in several months. We were, we were so young, so innocent then. I, I honestly remember thinking, well, they're probably not going to cancel the players' tournament, though. I mean... They, they got to finish that. They've already started. I, when they canceled the the tournament, I, I did not think they were going to cancel the NCAA tournament. In fact, I remember thinking... Me neither. You know, we had decided to work from home that week already before the NBA, um, before the NBA suspended. And I was thinking, okay, well, you know, we won't be able to live blog the NCAA tournament games from the office. Maybe I could have everyone over to my apartment. <laughs> <laughs> like, no, <laughs> Sarah. <laughs> we can share a meal together. Yeah, exactly. Everyone could crowd into my much smaller space than uh, our office space. We're going to have to be within six feet of each other just uh, <laughs> to do this. Yeah, I really was like, let's come up with alternatives. Never thinking 
no, the tournament was just not going to happen. Yeah, and, and if that did happen, and uh, we wouldn't have even thought about six feet. We would have um, just been like, make sure to use a lot of hand sanitizer because this thing spreads on surfaces yeah. and yeah. no other way. Mostly surfaces <laughs> and touching your face. Yeah, right. don't worry, guys. I've sprayed down all of the surfaces in my apartment. Everything's fine. We're Come good. on in from the outside. Everything will be fine. There's so there were so many bad COVID takes. I mean that that's inevitable. I, I'd hate for someone to go back and pull our tape from a year ago. I'm sure we said some things that were wildly wrong. Uh, maybe oh, not this wrong, for sure. but <laughs> <laughs> and I actually don't think. I don't think Max's take was even that wrong. I mean, the time frame was wrong in the sense of he said it would be back to normal in, um, you know, several months. It ended up being more than several months, but things did kind of pick up, like, especially for the NBA, picked up where they left off and they played basketball. I mean, and that's sort of the theme of sports, I think, from once we got through that period where there were no sports, which was really deeply uh, unprecedented and bizarre. They did kind of pick up and and start playing where they left off for the most part. Well, and that's, I mean, do you think that we'll remember that part? Like, things did get back to some kind of normal. I mean, normal looked different for each league, and and at you know each time that they came back but like will will we remember that or will we only remember the stoppage and the the going without sports for the couple months that we did will we will we even reconcile that it's tough to reconcile because i think it's like a little bit even like once they did start up and there were these crisis points like mlb the first week of the season, people were saying, like, are they going to have to shut it down again and and kind of go through that? Now we look back in the rearview mirror and it's like, oh, they finished the season and the Dodgers won. It was always going to, you know, uh, I, I think there's a tendency for us to kind of look at things that we know worked out in the end and think that they always were going to be that way. But yeah, I think it's important for us to kind of ground ourselves, especially being 363 days after the the start of all this to kind of remember what that was like, where it was really uncertain as to whether they would be able to pick up and play in 2020. I think I think a lot of the sort of day-to-day TikTok of, you know, what the leagues will do and what was canceled and postponed will be forgotten. I think we'll remember certain things. I think we'll remember the NBA bubble. I think that was significant um, and so unusual and also ultimately so successful in considering what was going on around it that I think that'll have staying power. And then I think, you know, we'll look back and see that there wasn't a tournament, a NCAA tournament in 2020. Or there wasn't a British Open in 2020 or something like that. And, and we'll, yeah, I mean, that, that that will stay. But I do think a lot of the sort of details will be lost because the, the games did go on and we had champions. And, and, and then, you know, things gradually sort of came back to a, a sense of normalcy. Yeah, I am. Um, I... I pulled a I pulled a picture for a story that ran today of a of a guy dunking the ball in a college basketball game, and the background is all these cardboard cutouts. and And it's 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 a funny picture. It's a cool picture of this dunk. But I've I've realized like that would be like just completely unexplainable, like a, a two years ago, right? We would be in like, what is that? Some sort of like, it would have made no sense whatsoever. And I do wonder if in another, you know, if in 10 years, people will be looking at old photos being like, what happened here? And need, like, 
you know, if you aren't steeped in what's going on in the leagues um, and in sports day to day, you might not understand that, you know, what's going on. And and things are going on at different times, right? There are fans at Knicks games, but not fans at, you know, at other games. So, like, that's all of this happening at different kind of timelines is going to make it very, very confusing to sort out later on. And I think, you know, the data is going to be weird long term, too. And in some sports more than others, you know, MLB was completely different last year than a normal season. The NFL was really not different at all in terms of games played now when the games were played and 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 the delays between them but that won't necessarily show up in in the data neil should we end up waiting 2020 differently or, or put some asterisks in there or pretend the year didn't happen or from a statistical point of view how should we how should we think about the data yeah it's a great question i just um I just filed a story, which you just edited, uh, that sort of gets into this some uh, for baseball looking ahead to 2021. And it's a little bit of a niche problem to have, but trying to figure out how to kind of forecast future seasons, not just in baseball, but I think baseball probably more than other sports, because, you know, even in the NBA and NHL last year, they were able to get like 70-ish games out of 82 in, which is like pretty close to a full season. And you can look at those stats and, and think, yeah, they probably would have done a little bit extra with you know, another couple weeks or, or whatever it would end up being, another month. Um, but basically, they're full season numbers. The NFL had a literal full season. But baseball, you're talking about 60 games instead of 162. That's like only a little bit more than a third of the normal numbers. So when we're trying to figure out how players will play in 2021, you kind of have to do something different with that. You can't use the normal uh, method of sort of like, oh, well, we'll use a weighted average of the past three years and we'll give more weight to the most recent year. It's like in some ways you have to give more weight to 2019 and that doesn't even get into players that opted out entirely. What do you do with their stats, you know, looking forward ahead? If there, is, it, is it better to have no data point and potentially be rusty versus have like some weird aberrant season? In either direction, I pointed out in the story, Mike Yastrzemski of the Giants had like a monster MVP season, you know, MVP-esque season uh, last year uh, that was totally out of keeping with his previous track record. So it's sort of like, can they expect that from him going forward? Jose Abreu is another example. He won the MVP in the AL and he had not been very good the previous couple years. He's also 34 years old. Uh, what do you do with that season? You know, it was a short season, uh, which, which we know can produce flukes and then at the other end somebody like JD Martinez had a just awful year Christian Yelich had a terrible year uh and do they do they get a mulligan for that you know should we should we just think of them as we thought of them going into 2020 and throw out 2020 you know the actual numbers from that season entirely that doesn't feel right but it's probably actually closer to right than treating 2020 like it was a normal season for a lot of different reasons and that before we even get into like what do you do with park effects? You know, Texas had a new park. Uh, the Blue Jays played their home games in a park that is a minor league park. You know, they, they didn't even play at home. Uh, and so we have we don't necessarily know what to do with that either. And the way park effects are calculated in baseball is that uses a multi-year weighted average that does treat seasons like they are, you know, kind of normal conditions. And that 
doesn't seem to be possible either. So I think the people that do park effects, which are pretty central to how we view baseball, you know, OPS plus and ERA plus and all those things are derived from that. They're going to have to do some special adjustments also around that. So I think baseball is the sport that had the the most weirdness and, and the most ripple effects when we're trying to figure out who was good versus bad and how to view players and also affect players' career stats. Because if you're a, a player trying to, you know, make the Hall of Fame someday or trying to pilot up numbers and hit the you know 3,000 hits or you know 300 wins I guess no one's gonna hit 300 wins anytime soon uh but you know you have now lost like if it's a prime season for you um I don't know whether future discussions of players' career accomplishments will also have to take into account the fact that this was a much shorter season than even, you know, like the strike-shortened year in 1994. It's, it's, uh, it's really a season unlike any that we've ever seen. I think the last time they played so few games was in like the 1800s or, or something like that. Yeah, I mean, it is... I think we talked about this a little bit last year, but it is a little bit like, you know, like the you know, the World War, World War Two years where, you know, some players just lost years and, you know, had to go serve, whatever. I mean, it's, it's, we're going to have to think about it much differently when we evaluate it than, you know, when we evaluate for Hall of Fame discussions and that kind of thing. I think people will remember that and like adjust accordingly, but you know, who knows? Um, Mike Yastrzemski has got a, got a case right now for the Hall of Fame. So he's like, I'm fine. Don't worry about it, guys. <laughs> yeah, that is funny. The players that had great years are like, yeah, no, this is a totally normal season. The yeah. players that had the bad, you know, like Christian Yelich is like, can we forget this happened? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so did this year, I, I kept finding myself during during the year, during this past year, thinking about sports and what it meant to me and to the to you know culture at large while we were talking about you know whether whether leagues should start whether players should be playing at some of the you know peaks of the pandemic and and thinking about what it meant to me to have sports back and what it meant when it was gone you know, did did getting through this year change how you guys relate to sports at all or, or think about its place in, in the culture? I think so. I mean, to me, I think I just realized, like, how sports just means everything to me. I mean, <laughs> I, I, you know, I think that that might be, like, too much, uh, you know, or, or whatever. But it really, like, I don't know, not having it during that time um, and just the, I don't know, there was, like, a distinct sadness uh, of of what was missing and it was like the most glaring reminder that things were not okay they were not normal and even coming back and being under like the weird conditions that we just talked about was a constant reminder that like things are not normal but they but they have the potential to become normal again you know with with uh, the leagues coming back and and trying to play through it and learning things as they did play through it i think that that was it, it really spoke to, first of all, yeah, there's a lot of money involved and, and you know, for for uh, romantics like me, it's a little easy to lose sight of that when it's like they're not they're only playing these things and they only tried so hard to come back because there was so much money on the line if they didn't uh, and, and they didn't care about how, you know, some Joe Schmo like me emotionally attaches <laughs> to baseball uh, or whatever. But I think multiple things can be true at the same time. And I can feel really emotionally attached to baseball. And it can be really important to have it back uh, and, and to just have the day-to-day 
something normal. You know, we're we're stuck in our homes uh, and and haven't been to the office in a year, and you know all of these other things. But gosh darn it, you know, there's I can throw on a baseball game during the season or you know basketball game now uh, every night and you know, pretend and feel a little bit like things are moving in a direction of normalcy. And maybe, you know, if the NBA can play, uh, then maybe we can go back to the office someday. You know, I think that there there was something important about that, um, that it provided a measure of hope about, you know, that we will come out of this thing on the other side eventually. I think I had both sides. I definitely had what Neil's experience. I definitely experienced that miss that longing for sports during that you know case in point i was like watching horse racing from arkansas for a little while because it was the only thing on. i thought that was yeah normal no wait you. a second <laughs> that's not that normal it's not that normal i don't normally get into horse racing that much it was literally the only thing being played except for over you know international table tennis or whatever else was going on marble racing yes. yeah but there were also there were some moments where I definitely had that thought cross my head of like, why are we doing this? What's the point? Particularly with college football, I think college football was pretty ugly. I think it exposed even more ugliness in the sport that they don't really care about these guys and their health, and they never have, and they probably never will, and they're certainly not going to pay them. And the fact that they just powered through and played that season where we're canceling 12 games a week, I think was, was kind of ugly. And I definitely had some, some moments where I'm like, I might be done with college football for sure. Maybe Michigan was just really bad this year. That's the other factor. (laughs) I got to sort of sort those out in my head. You know, when there was baseball back last summer, it was like, I mean, it, it, you know, I, I think I, it's possible that I cried over watching baseball games. Definitely (laughs) cried. Seems, uh, seems likely. Um, and, and I, and it, and it did show like how important it is to me and, and how much I value it. And there were the times when I thought we shouldn't, we shouldn't get that. We, we as a society did not deserve to have sports right now. We have not done the work to have sports back and I, I think that's true. There are times when we, I mean, really, all of, you know, last fall, we weren't doing the work to stop the virus. We weren't doing the work to to really deal with it on a national level. And and that really frustrated me as a sports fan because, you know, I wanted, I wanted people to be able to go to the games. I wanted the virus to be over for lots of reasons, not just sports. Um, so, you know, the whole roller coaster of not having sports, getting them back, feeling weird about it, not being sure that we were doing it in the right way, it did really cement the role of sports in my life and how how much I appreciate them and value them. I'll never take them for granted again until too many of them are happening at the same time and I'm overwhelmed and think there's too much sports happening. Until then, and then I'll go through the whole cycle again. <laughs> Right. Uh, yeah. No, that's, that's a great point. It's interesting. I think the leagues can learn from this to, that it also revealed how flexible we are. I think there was a lot of thinking, you know, a couple of years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, that you can't you can't change baseball. That's the way it's always been done. Um, and it turns out, yeah, you can change it and we won't care. We might even like it. And that's true of all sports. You can change the length of the schedule. You can change the divisions. You can change the playoff structure. Um, we're not married to anything. Yeah, I wonder how much 
how flexible we were beforehand versus how much flexibility we've learned from like just having to adapt in a in a weird season. I think I was more like willing to take on di- weirdness just to get sports in, which is maybe like maybe I'm not very flexible and need to work on that. Maybe that's what I'm learning through all of this that I should I should be more flexible in my thinking. All right, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back to talk a little bit more about a year of pandemic sports. When we've talked about the virus on the podcast before, we've often said that sports were the canary in the coal mine. When COVID-19 made the NBA postpone a game, that was kind of when we all realized that this was serious and our lives were about to change. I think we'll probably all feel that things are back to normal when sports look more normal, but some things are not ever going to look the same. At sportsillustrated.com, John Wertheim talked about how the pandemic is reshaping college athletics. Yeah, college athletic departments are already challenged. A lot of them have lost the revenue that's come with March Madness, with the NCAA broadcast fees. And depending on the state of football, those cuts could go even deeper. And you call them non-revenue sports. That's exactly right. These are sports that don't, by definition, earn revenue. And we're seeing those sports getting cut. Those are sports that are able to exist because of football, basketball revenues. And with those slashed, that's going to trickle down to other sports. Economically, things are likely to be hard for sports at at all levels going forward in in some capacity. But the college sports that don't generate revenue on their own seem especially likely to face cuts. Neil, do you think that trickle-down effect is going to change what sports get played? Or do you think that, you know, programs on the chopping block now, particularly those in the Olympic sports, will bounce back in a few years? Uh, yeah, I mean, it's it's tough to to kind of see them bouncing back fully for sure, just because so many have already been cut uh, or are sort of in such precarious situations. And I think, you know, we talked about the pandemic giving cover to leagues to do kind of cool experimental things. It also gave them cover to do some of the stuff that they probably wanted to do all along, but maybe politically couldn't do in terms of allocating money to certain things where it's like, uh, you know, this is a line item on our budget that we don't necessarily put that much of a priority into. We'd love to get rid of it. Oh, hey, now our you know, we were meeting budget shortfalls because of the pandemic. Oops, looks like we have to get rid of this. So I think that there's a lot of cases like that. And I think it's got it, it has this huge ripple effect across um, like a whole almost a generation of uh, athletes in in some of these, you know, sports that aren't the revenue g- powerhouses that football and basketball are. Uh, and that, you know, being in those sports created a pipeline for a lot of athletes to go to college, you know, get scholarships, all of those things. And, and so I think that the ripple effects of cutting these programs, cutting spots on, on teams and, and the scholarships or, you know, just opportunities to, you know, play a sport in college and, and have that, um, that chance to build connections and build, you know, lifelong relationships. All of those things uh, are really some of the biggest things that are lost, especially when you just look at college sports in particular. The bottom line is, I think the NCAA business model is just broken, and, and we knew that before. When you have these high revenue sports of football and basketball sort of paying for all the other college sports, that's a flawed pro. That's a flawed setup, and I don't really know what the solution is. You know, where where you have TV revenue generating so much money in college sports, 
you can't count on people all of a sudden wanting to watch collegiate swim meets on television. I think that's sort of the problem with the Olympic sports is that our appetite for them is is limited in terms of spectatorship to to about once every four years. Um, so I, I don't really know how you do that. But that being said, there's there's other problems in college sports, and I think that was exposed during COVID rather than sort. You know, we're talking about all these other leagues that, in the name of money and, and finding a way to to not lose money they innovated and they they scrambled and they created bubbles and they changed rules and they adjusted schedule and all that and then look what the NCA did they basically ab- abdicated all responsibility they made it the wild west and it, it it could have been a moment for them to step up but i think what it showed is that the NCAA this thing has become unwieldy and too big and we have public universities and private universities and schools with different interests. We have the Ivy League, which sort of seems like they don't want to play sports ever again. (laughs) And then you got SEC football, where it's the lifeblood and the most important thing for the school. So it's a lot to handle. I don't have a great solution, but I think eventually we are going to need to see major change, both, I think, at the top level, the the, the revenue gen- generating sports and, and the lower sports to make those, you know, viable, because I think we do need that. And, and, and it's not just collegiate sports, it's also youth sports. I think, you know, participation sports and particularly youth driven leagues and camps, they all took a huge hit now. And, and whether that, you know, means the government has to get more involved in subsidizing some of these things, I'm not sure. Uh, Yeah. And I mean, the NCAA model, I think you guys are right. I mean, this has been messed up forever. It's also, I think people don't necessarily understand that when you're talking about non-revenue generating sports, the scholarships involved are usually, you know, shared. So you might get a quarter of a scholarship when you're, you know, in a, when you're on the swim team or whatever. Um, so it's not like it's, it's already, those athletes are already not being treated as well as the, the revenue generating sport athletes. So there's, so that's another thing where it's like, you know, the issue of, of player pay and, you know, well, they're getting scholarships. Well, not all of them are. I mean, that's and scholarships are are doled out in really different ways already. Um, and the pandemic has exposed this for sure. But this is always a problem. These, you know, schools are constantly having to cut programs, reshuffle resources um, when when they're when they're big ones don't make enough money or it's not sustainable. So, like, you know, the. I, Iowa State cut its baseball team back in in the late 90s and that's too bad. I wonder on the on the opposite side of that if there are any sports that are maybe going to come out of the pandemic a little stronger than they went into it. You know, we started last year talking about the kind of momentum break in women's sports that there had been really a big push um, there was more interest in the in the WNBA, more interest in women's college basketball, women's soccer after the Women's World Cup. And then it's sort of the, with everything stopping, we really we wondered at the time, Neil, you wrote a story about that, that um, that whether those those sports would suffer because of the break. And I actually kind of think they didn't. I feel like the WNBA had better ratings than ever before. While all of the men's leagues were falling, dropping off in ratings, the WNBA TV ratings went up, the NWSL ratings went up. Now, part of this is 
they were on TV. So that was new and and really helpful. Imagine that. You put a sport on TV and people will watch. Um, so those are some sports that I think might actually have been helped by the weird bubble um, in the middle of the pandemic. I don't do you guys? Yeah, I, no, I agree with that. I, I definitely think women's sports have, you know, kind of built more momentum and that it didn't stall them out uh, when things shut down. And yeah, it's. Uh, I think the opportunity with maybe things being a little bit more clear on the rest of the schedule to kind of, you know, not crowd them out uh, played a big role. I also think politics plays a big role in that particular uh, front, which I think would have happened anyway, but also the pandemic's effect on polarization and, you know, political uh, habits of consuming entertainment and all of these things, I think, are also kind of beyond the scope of this podcast, but a really fascinating topic, because I do think that the pandemic in some ways accelerated our polarization. So if you want to kind of uh, signal that you're of a certain political persuasion, supporting women's sports is now kind of a left wing um, uh, mentality or policy that I think women's sports is rightly benefiting from yeah and i i think it makes sense that that taste of exposure benefited the sport that much and sarah you're exactly right like yeah put it on tv and then see what happens you know i've said this before but i have two daughters and and my oldest you know she's not gonna ever watch novak Djokovic play tennis but if she sees serena williams on the nor screen, should she she or or anyone but she sees serena williams on on the screen she's gonna watch you know she will never watch a liverpool game but she was glued to the women's world cup you know you you picking something up here it's half the population like it's gonna work there will be an interest so I, i'm happy that that you know i think a lot of it was was probably you know serendipitous that it got this opportunity because i'm not sure it would have gotten an opportunity like this in a in a normal year cycle or it would have just taken time it would have been just this slow chipping away uh, yeah i i think i think neil's right too that there was a political element to this a and i wonder if that is lasting like are people who are you know newly supporters of the WNBA because of uh, because of their you know social justice work and their and their work um, you know, election work even, are are those people going to stick around? Are they interested in basketball? Are they interested in following women's basketball? Or is that going to wane? And I think that will be really interested, interesting to see, um, you know, whether those those new fans really support the players and really stick around for the game. Because that's really what, you know, what women's basketball, what women's athletes want is to be treated like athletes and not women's athletes um and and for their accomplishments on the court to matter too it's sort of funny like i think i think there are men's athletes who you know want to be seen as more than just athletes who want to be seen as the political people that they are too and women are like yeah that's awesome but can you also like see me as a basketball player <laughs> can you also pay us <laughs> yeah right exactly yeah that too well and then and then you get to the power dynamics in sports and and that was really interesting during the pa pandemic as well you know players both in pros and in college saying hey no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna play i'm not gonna do this this isn't right for me this isn't right for my family that was really interesting in our like ongoing discussions about right. you know player agency. Just Jeff, does, 
except in college football where the the <laughs> Pac-10 stars had a list of demands and they were like, uh, cool, uh, we're just going to ignore that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Who could have seen that coming? <laughs> cool demands, though. Thanks for sending. We'll look it over. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, your your demands are very important to us. This is cool. Yes. <laughs> Delete. Please hold for the next Move available. To trash. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a that's a great point. But Jeff, does being a player mean anything different now after we've gone through this? Yeah, I actually think the what might be the biggest impact of COVID on sports is is this change in in the sort of agency of players but and when i say agency i mean the willingly the willingness to to speak out and you know to not be shy about activism i mean and, and really that cascading effect of what that happened and a lot of this stemmed from george floyd and all that over the summer and all the protests but but really the the change was remarkable if you think about it i mean the Atlanta Dream, the players got them to, ch- their owner to sell the team uh, because of their protesting. The the Washington football team changed its name. And, you know, a lot of this, I think, has to do with the money, too. But I think what happened is that the advertisers and all that sort of flipped sides and realized that we're, we're on, we're not going to stand by the sort of crusty old white men who own these teams and we're gonna go after the we're gonna back the athletes who are wildly popular now i wonder and this is like an unanswerable question and also i think a pretty big question is how how much of that happened because of the pandemic and would have happened regardless of the pandemic everything that happened in the summer the protests the the player reactions all of that is really hard to separate from a pandemic and i and also the political climate at the moment that it was the conditions were ripe for you know eruption really and and how athletes responded i thought was was really telling that we are in a place now where we 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 understand that that athletes are are people first and not athletes first and have feelings that they need to process and need the space to process and and should be everyone needs to be okay with that with with athletes having strong opinions about things and they won't always be opinions that we that you know i personally agree with and that's also got to be okay right i mean there's there's a component of celebrity and and what that means to be famous in America and what it means to be famous for sports that I think is really, really interesting and and is something that I think will be untangling for a while. And it was sort of the perfect storm last summer for for a lot of emotions to come to a head and sort of give us a different path for what it looks like to be an athlete. But but I think also the part of this goes beyond sports. I, I, I personally don't think the George Floyd moment happens in the same well certainly not in the same capacity if it's not a pandemic anyway i think that you know times of crisis cause this you know people are fed up they're they're angry and they're like i'm not gonna take this injustice on top of that you know i'm fed up and i think in many ways you know sports is a mirror to society and i think that it really was reflecting something that a lot of people were feeling and have been feeling for a long time and it just took a while to sort of get to the surface because there were all these powers, whether in the media or whether in politics, that were pushing this down. Yeah, 
fully, fully agree with that. Okay, you know, we will be processing the past year in sports for a long time, I think, and 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 we'll have, I'm sure, a lot more um, to say about it as we do process those feelings. For now, I think we can leave this here and take a quick break. We'll be back then for our rabbit hole of the week. At 538, we often find ourselves falling down various rabbit holes of data. Some lead to stories, some don't. We end each week's show with one of those descents, the hot takedown rabbit hole of the week. Neil, take it away. Yeah, I want to talk about the most, surely the most important sporting event of 2021 uh, so far, which was the NBA All-Star Game (laughs) on Sunday. Uh, Team LeBron defeated Team Durant, which was a little bit of a misnomer because Kevin Durant was not actually playing for Team Durant. Uh, He was injured. He was replaced by DeMontis Sabonis. Uh, But anyway, uh, Team LeBron won 170 to 150. And if you look at the rosters on the two teams, it's no surprise why Team LeBron won. It was a little bit mismatched uh team lebron in addition to having its namesake also had nikola Jokic, Giannis antetokounmpo steph curry luka Doncic. no offense to team durant whose starting five was kyrie irving bradley beal Kawhi leonard you got Kawhi in there jason tatum and zion williamson but uh a little a little one-sided and it was reflected in the fact that lebron only needed to play 13 minutes he scored only four points in this game. Really, the heavy lifting was done by his teammate, Giannis Antetokounmpo, who had a wild stat line in this game. So he scored 35 points. Uh, he won MVP, I should also note, and, and we'll, we'll understand why. Uh, 35 points in that game was the uh, 16th most by any player in All-Star Game history, tied for 16th uh, with Allen Iverson from 2003. That's pretty good. Uh, But he did it on 16 for 16 shooting, which is crazy. Uh, Of those 16, three were three-pointers, which is also pretty big for him. I think two of the three-pointers banked in, which was fun, uh, (laughs) along the way. But uh, it was was not the first time someone shot a perfect 100% from the floor in the All-Star game. It's happened 36 times. But it was by far the the highest scoring one. The previous record was Hal Greer in 1968. Uh, he went 8-for-8 eight eight from the floor and scored 21 points. Nice game. Good game. Uh, but Giannis... 16 for 16 for 35 points. <laughs> Easily the most points scored by anyone in a, in a perfect shooting game. And it was really one of the best All-Star Game performances of all time. Uh, if you look at it by the numbers, so I crunched the game score which is John Hollinger's attempt to distill a player's performance into a single number uh, based on a weighted sum of their various contributions, uh, positively and negatively. Uh, And I found that it was the sixth highest game score anyone ever had in an all-star game. Surprisingly, it was not... The, it was not only not number one, it was not even Giannis's number one All-Star game. In 2019, he had a game score. Uh, so so on Sunday, he had a game score of 33.9. In 2019, he had a game score of 34.3 after he went 17 for 23. Not a perfect shooting day, uh, but he also had 11 rebounds, five assists, uh, and uh, 38 points in that game. So slightly higher game score for that. Now, the best 
all-star game ever. And there's some good candidates for this. Wilt Chamberlain in 1962 had 42 points on 17 for 23 shooting. He also had 24 rebounds. It was a different time, but I mean, that's some Wilt Chamberlain. Like that's what you want out of him in an all-star game. Michael Jordan in 1988, he went 17 for 23. Very popular shooting line. That was that was Wilt's line in 62 and Giannis's in 2019 and Jordan's in 88. He scored 40 points, uh, eight rebounds, three assists, four steals, four blocks uh, to go with the 40 points. But the best by game score, surprisingly, it was not Giannis. It was Anthony Davis from 2017, in which he shot 26 for 39 from the floor, 10 rebounds, two steals. He had 52 points, uh, and that was the highest game score by a player in the history of the All-Star game. Fun fact, in uh, so he made 26 shots from the floor, Anthony Davis did, in 2017. Uh, that is more than the entire Eastern Conference made in the 1952 All-Star Game. They only made they only made 25 shots from the floor in that game. They took way more shots. I think they took 60 plus shots. Uh, Davis did it on only 39 shots. Uh, it was a different game back then. They shot a lot. They they missed a lot. Uh, but but now hyper efficient basketball really embodied, I think, still, even though it wasn't number one by game score, uh, by Giannis going 16 for 16 from the floor in that game, obviously winning MVP honors uh, and really carrying that team. It's interesting, though, that so he carried Team LeBron. Again, LeBron, really not much of a factor for Team LeBron. Maybe this is like, you know, as he... uh, becomes the elder statesman of the game. Maybe this can be like a transition to become like a team owner slash, you know, GM slash coach where he will have an actual team LeBron in the NBA. It'll just be a franchise and he'll draft various players to be in that. I think that's the next step for him, but he's already well on his way toward that because team LeBron is four and O since the league changed the format to the player fantasy draft, you know, uh, superstar uh, on on each side drafting teams. Uh, That is now tied for the second longest winning streak by a conference or whatever you want to call it in all-star game history in the NBA. Uh, The Eastern Conference won five straight from 1980 to 84. They also won four straight from 1963 to 66. Uh, those were the two old top two. And Team LeBron has won four straight from 2018 to 21. So he is a conference unto himself, uh, historically speaking, in the All-Star game as well. Uh, and I just I just love the fact that he drafted a team for a variety of different reasons, but that was like heavily stacked compared with the other team. Apologies to Durant. He didn't play. He was hurt. Uh, And there are a number of players that didn't play, uh, including Anthony Davis. He was on Team Durant, didn't play. Devin Booker replaced Anthony Davis, and then he didn't play uh, due to injury as well. Um, And then Joel Embiid was out due to um, COVID contact tracing. So a little bit of a depleted Team Durant. Don't want to, you know, uh, take too many pot shots at them. But Team LeBron, really one of the greatest collections of talent we've seen in a starting five in any All-Star game. And he just delegated you know he's just like Giannis you you got this take care of this bank in some threes make all 16 of your shots and have one of the best all-star performances of all time and carry my namesake team to its fourth straight win which is (laughs) one of the longest winning streaks in all-star history I mean also like he also had like Steph Curry doing Steph Curry things. Yeah, Steph Curry was ten for nineteen with twenty eight points and and, and uh, made eight threes in that game. And you know Dame Lillard too had thirty two. It's like 
Yeah, that team. I mean, you don't get to 170. He had 32 points off the bench. Yeah, you don't get to 170 points without having, you know, a fair number of <laughs> of, of double-digit scores. Um, Kawhi Leonard had an interesting stat line, too, for, for, for team absent Durant. Um, he had only eight points but nine rebounds. So I guess... And eight assists. Yeah, he went three for eight, so maybe there were some, uh, there were more chances there for for Team Durant. But that was interesting. That was the most rebounds in the game. How many <laughs> How many dunks did he have? I wonder. Yeah, I don't have the number, but yeah, it was quite a few. I mean, like the All Star Game is really if you want to see guys dunk with like no one in the immediate vicinity, this is the game for you. I don't know who wants to see that, but um, there were a few that were fun, like, you know, some follow-ups off of some misses and, and various other things. But my favorite, I, I just loved the bank threes. I, I, I think that that is like more players need to make use of that technique uh, in their regular arsenal. I really like the bank three idea, and I think the three-point contest should only be bank threes now. Yes. You have to, you have to bank it in. Otherwise, it won't count. That can replace well, the, the money, money ball. ball. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it should be only bankable. I mean, that it's in the name, right? Money. Yeah, right. Yeah. Take it to the bank. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Brought to you by four corporate sponsors. Yes, exactly. <laughs> what about a game that's only threes? Yes. Yeah. You just get one point for hitting a three, and you can't score, you know, inside the arc. Just lean <laughs> that's into just it. called the regular NBA. Yeah, right. right. No, but just fully lean into it. So, like, if you get a rebound, you got to kick it back out. It'll be fun. So our official position is, eh, do that. Eh, why not? <laughs> that ML- seems our weird. Do that. Is the MLB All Star Game is good. Keep that the same. The Pro Bowls are relevant. Let's never talk about it. And <laughs> mission accomplished this yeah. year. NHL and NBA experiment. Yeah. No, I like that. I think that's I think that's the right I think that's the right way to go. All right. Well, thank you for that rabbit hole, Neil. Um, and th- and thank you, Giannis, for your 16 for 16 performance um, in that very fun All Star game. All right. That will do it for this week's show. We'll be back in your feed next Tuesday. If you like what you heard, please subscribe. And if you are subscribed, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It helps new people discover the show. You can also email us at podcast at five thirty eight dot com to let us know what you think. Our podcast producer is Sarah Shackett. Tony Chow is in the virtual control room. And our podcast commissioner is Chad Matlin. For Neil and Jeff, I'm Sarah. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.